Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few seconds, I'll be joined by my co-host, Chris Wachter, as every other week, we come to you to break down an Old Testament passage, a psalm, a portion of a New Testament letter, and my favorite part, the but what about section, where we look at a trickier part of scripture that seems to go against everything we talk about here on this podcast, but actually doesn't. We are glad to have you with us. Chris, it's good to see you, my friend. I get to see you twice in one week. We get to spend some time on Monday with some other church planners talking about church buildings. Who doesn't love that? Bonus. Yes. And uh, how are you doing for the second time this week? Doing well. Yeah, it's been a a good week of seeing other uh, ministry professionals, I'll say, (laughs) pastors on Monday. I got to actually go away with my staff team uh, for a day retreat yesterday, so that was good. And uh, saw some other of my elders last night for a preaching court. I'm taking them through a couple of my younger elders, so that was pretty fun. Sounds like a short day. It was uh, it was 15 hours, so maybe that's short for some people. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna comp some time out. I think uh, go. Uh, the rest of this week. But good to be here, though. Good to see you. How how are you doing this week? Yeah, mostly doing well. I mean, I think from a from a working standpoint, things have been good. Got to hang out with Great. you and many others and talk about uh, ministry stuff, and that's just always. It's just, it refreshes the soul. I know we've talked about that on the podcast in the past. Of uh, yeah, you just run run into hard things, uh, you know, in this line of work and to be around others who understand that it's, it, misery loves company. Mm. <laughs> so there's an enjoyment in that Agree. process. And my latest misery actually is just physical injury. So we've started a basketball ministry here at the church and, um, just been playing a lot of that. And I just had an injury just for, like, I didn't do anything wrong. Like I didn't twist an ankle or anything like that. It was just use. It was just using the muscles in my body. <laughs> and the doctor said, yeah, this is just an overuse injury in the muscle behind my Achilles tendon that I didn't know existed until now, until there was pain. So and where's the line of, yeah. uh, when you use something too much? I guess you just feel it then. It, it just hurts. It yeah, yeah. So it's just one of those things where you're like, wow, yeah, this is this is what life looks like now. Isn't that exciting? I jumped off a platform yesterday for a, kind of a fun picture with my staff team, uh, just for kind of one of those jumping in the air pictures, you know? And I think it was just like a foot off the ground, but felt that coming down <laughs> on one of my, my right knee. So. Felt every inch of yeah. that foot. <laughs> Apparently that was overuse for me oh as, my as well. Goodness. So. Well, speaking of injuries that are meaningless, I Mm. think we now open to Ecclesiastes. That's where we're going to be hanging out in our Old Testament uh, today. After that, we'll go to Psalm 69, and then we'll continue through 2 Corinthians 1, finishing that chapter up before we get to our, but what about passage slash question today, uh, which is going to be the warnings in the beginning of the letter to Revelations. What do we do with those? How do we make sense of those, especially in light of the gospel? So good question. Excited to talk about that. Before we do, let's talk about things that are meaningless, survey says. Ecclesiastes 2, the first 11 verses. So if you're unfamiliar with the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, it's written by Solomon, and it is a bit of a downer uh, in so many ways, uh, but it's there's intent behind that. There is a It's an honest look at the world that we inhabit, where our lives are built Uh, upon the curse of Genesis 3, and everything around us is kind of this constant philosophy of what is going to satisfy my soul, what will actually give me meaning and purpose in a fallen world. 
And the spoiler alert is that human beings look to things that we already have and just think, man, if I just have more of that, that will make myself have meaning. That will give me purpose. That will give me a a sturdy ground on which to stand and build my life. And Solomon again and again and again says, actually, that can't satisfy. It is meaningless. It is vanity, uh, some translations say. In other words, it's like grabbing after smoke, if if that's what we build our lives on. And that's a lot of Ecclesiastes 1. And then uh, in today's passage, it's it's the second chapter, and he's actually going to turn to pleasure or worldly riches of, okay, maybe if wisdom isn't the thing that's going to give me meaning, maybe I'll just fly off the handles and do whatever I want and try to satisfy all of the desires of my heart. And, and he tries to, to do that. He says, I'm gonna, I'm, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasures to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. And then he goes on and on and on saying all of these things he tried to build and all of these things he accumulated, he became the richest man in, in history in so many respects. And he continues to just say, meaningless. Uh, I, mm. my, my mind does jump to the Tim McGraw song, uh, where he, where a guy's diagnosed with a, uh, I think it's a terminal illness and, and he famously just goes on to this kind of mid this experience of, I, I need to be happy now. And so I went skydiving and then he lists all the other things, Rocky mountain climbing. And, uh, oh, what is, what else does he do? He's on and on. He goes to try and try and, mm-hmm. okay, well now I'm really going to live. And the whole song ends with, and I wish, I wish you could have this experience. You don't need the terminal illness part, but just to live like you were dying. And he just keeps saying that. It says, live like you were dying. And I, I always just want to hear part two of that song of like, what was this guy's life like next week? Because I think it would sound a lot like Ecclesiastes too. When he like, put the guitar down and realized, <laughs> I'm still going to die. Right. You know, <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't know. does it really satiate that much? I don't know. I, but, I, it was it was exciting when I was falling out of the sky, but yeah, I still have this terminal illness that exists in my bones and, mm-hmm. and I'm facing eternity. Uh, who, who knows when? And the reality is yet, yeah, yeah, even chasing after pleasures has led me to where the, the teacher of Ecclesiastes two says this, this too was meaningless. So, yeah. He says, um, I think at the end of the passage, I, anything I wanted, I said yes to mm-hmm. anything. And cause he had the money, he had the resources, he had the wisdom, uh, to do it. And he's saying it didn't work. It and, was, and just to put it in perspective, I, I did find someone who comment. I, I wanted just to like somebody just list out all the things. The, this commentary said he had the most successes, the best houses, the most possessions, the richest lifestyle, the most sophistication, the finest wines, the most incredible parties and feasts, the greenest lawns, the best servants, more money than we could possibly imagine, military fame, popularity, endless entertainment, and as much sexual pleasure as anyone could ever indulge in. And after all that, he says it was all empty. Hmm. This is like the lottery syndrome, right? Where people think, oh, if I win the lottery, I won't be a wreck. Like people are when they seem to win the lottery <laughs> and realize, and, and say like, I wish I didn't win it because everyone asks me for money and I lose my friends and it doesn't, doesn't make me happy and I just don't know what to do with it, you know, and I have more problems than I, than I did before. But we think, oh, but... I don't think that'll be true for me. I think I could probably handle two million, two million dollars uh, today, or ten million, or a hundred million. Uh, but but Solomon's a good like bookend to that, right? Because he actually had the most of anybody ever out of all history in a physical uh, kind of carnal sense. And he's saying, yeah, it was it was like chasing the wind. Basically, it was you know it was a glimpse, a whisper, a smoke, a vapor. It just didn't do it. Laughter itself was madness. <laughs> you know, like not a 
maybe a fun guy to cozy up to uh, with a beer, you know, uh, who says very fun at parties, very fun at parties. <laughs> yeah. Laughter is meaningless and madness. Like, is it though? <laughs> kind of like to laugh a little bit sometimes, but he, but he realized that everything apart from God is just, is uh, smoke. It just, it disappears. Or like in Minnesota, we would in the winter, right? You breathe and you see your, see your, uh, your breath for about a, a half a second. Right. And it's just gone. That's kind of what he's saying. So, but yeah, other thoughts though you had. Yeah, I, I was struck in reading it today by just the number of times he, uh, in this quest, I mean, he even said, I said to myself, and and that word it's, it itself comes up so many times in these first 11 verses of the second chapter. Uh, I tried cheering myself with wine. I built houses for myself. I made gardens. I made reservoirs. I bought male and female servants. I also own more herds and flocks. I amassed silver and gold. I acquired male and female singers. I became greater by far than anyone. I denied myself nothing. And it's just on and on and on. He just keeps going on. This is what I did for myself. And I tell you at the end, all of it is meaningless. Nothing was gained under the sun. It's a chasing after the wind. And uh, I, I, so just looking at that, it's just a fascinating, like, okay, I think, first of all, he's doing a really good job diagnosing our hearts of like, as we go after anything in life, there is just a tendency to like, this is about me and what I'm acquiring. And he, even the very goods that are, are written in my name, they're mine, right? Like, and, instead of seeing that, yeah, no, actually at the end of the day, you're just a steward of God. Like all these things belong to him. You're just kind of managing them until the, the breath of the wind is, is gone and you're, and you're just no, no more. Um, so that, that's just the first kind of like, huh, that's interesting. And then the idea of Jesus himself, when he talks about Solomon in the New Testament, he actually says he's greater than him. And I, I was just struck by that language. If something greater than Solomon is here, and he's talking about himself, and you pair that with, with Jesus' own understanding of greatness, right? When he's teaching his disciples, hey, you guys want to be great. Let me, let me tell you what this actually means. To be great is to become a servant. And you see this in, in Jesus' life for sure, but you see it in the highest form in his death, that something greater than the greatest man who ever lived in Jerusalem is actually going to come down from heaven and empty himself and give away what Solomon was trying to chase for himself so that everyone could have more than Solomon acquired for himself. Like this is, the more you start to just kind of connect these dots, you're like, whoa, there's something greater than the greatest man in Jerusalem and his, his name is Jesus, but the way that he's great is, is by doing the exact opposite of what Solomon was after. Mm. He didn't acquire all these things for himself. Instead, he came down and, and gave away all that he had. He gave away the very glory of being compared with God, it says in Philippians 2, and then emptied himself all the way up to the day that he took his last breath on a cross so that anyone who would be united to him would be given access to far more in a spiritual sense than what Solomon was able to acquire physically. Yeah, I love that. It reminds me too of John 3, where Jesus says that those who are born again are born of the spirit and kind of of the wind, kind of like as the wind blows, so are those who are born of the spirit, meaning you can't really quantify it or plan for it or see it even. It just, it surprises you and catches you off guard and kind of comes out of nowhere. But a great contrast to Solomon, who's saying, I was trying to work really hard at making myself happy or kind of saving myself really before God. And that was like a chasing after the wind. Whereas Jesus, the second Solomon comes along and says, actually, you need to be chased by the wind, chased by the spirit. You need to be found by God uh, against the, the natural flow of things, against the current of your works and, and found helpless, hopeless, uh, 
you know, empty handed and, but ready to receive the, the gifts that the spirit of God has to blow on you with. Uh, and so then you see in John 20, uh, 20 as well, when he rises from the dead, he blows on the disciples, right? So he's bringing the wind, he's bringing the meaning and the happiness and, and the joy, not against the grain of our works by grace, not by what we do. And that very breath of life is such an image there at that new creation, that new garden that Jesus is bringing. And it has everything to do with rest. It has everything to do with work that is done, not by human hands, like uh, Solomon says here. Like, like I looked at all that my hands had done at what I had toiled to achieve. And guess what? There was no rest. It was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Meaning itself is not found under the sun. Which, uh, whenever I see that under the sun language, you just have this this coin, you know, this little nudge to Jesus of like, yeah, you do need somebody that cu- that came from out from above the sun. You, you need someone who came from heaven itself and actually l- submitted himself under the sun and died so that we might be given all of these things. We might be given an actual rest that was given uh, to us, not by human hands, but by hands from above that ultimately caught a nail in our place. So yeah, lots there. We could probably go on, but for the sake of time, let's turn to Psalm 69. This is a not short psalm, kind of like your work day earlier this week. This would take us 15 hours to read, so I'm not going to read the whole thing today. But uh, I do want to point out, first of all, that this is a psalm that, uh, man, it's it's got a lot of help me language. It's a lot of somebody being in dire straits. I mean, it opens up with the, the line, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. And on and on this this psalm goes, describing images and pictures of what it means to be at the end of your rope and to be not only that physically, but to be isolated relationally, to be hated, to be mocked, to be weeping in the presence of people who just hate you without reason. Um, and to be scorned by so many uh, individuals in your life. And so what's what's maybe just helpful to just set the groundwork for a discussion on Psalm 69 is to pay attention to the number of places that the New Testament appreciates the psalm, and especially the way it talks about it. So the, the New Testament is very interested in the psalm and brings it up on several occasions. John's Gospel has many uh, allusions to it or direct quotes. Um, explicitly just saying Jesus himself, just saying a lot of these words, either in his ministry, like in John 15 or John two, the zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, Those who hate me without reason. uh, That's in John 15, when he's talking to his disciples saying, they're going to hate you too. They hate me without reason. Um, Romans is going to quote this on more than one occasion. And then all four gospels are actually going to quote, um, I think it's verse 21, when Jesus is dying on the cross, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. All four gospels quote that. And uh, I just really appreciated a few uh, ancient commentaries on this. Uh, Like Origen says, the, the reason all four gospels quote this is because they're indicating that there's no change in the person of the speaker of the psalm. In other words, Jesus says these words when he's dying on the cross, and that's not different than the Jesus who said these words through the mouth of David roughly a thousand years earlier. Uh, Or Augustine himself says, people who interpret Old Testament prophecies of Christ in light of his suffering, death, and resurrection recognize his true identity. 
So just a, a way to underline a lot of, I think, the way we've been thinking about Psalms so far in our studies together on this podcast is to say before this Psalm has anything to say about us and what God is looking at for our lives, it has everything to say about Jesus. This is a Psalm of Jesus, and he's one who's writing it down beforehand, and he's going to say it again when he's dying on the cross, suffering for us so that he might bury all that ails us in his grave and come back from the dead victorious over these things. Yeah, I think in Romans 15 says that when Paul's using this psalm, he says uh, that Christ said these things. Christ said that the the reproaches that were meant for God uh, fell on me. And so I love that substitutionary image in the psalm too, where it's you know almost like the sins that were going up that we commit, that we're going up before God, like Jesus got in the way of the stream of them and, and sort of absorbed them like a sponge, you know? And so he's our, not just mediator, but kind of the stopper of our sins and the one that, that kind of bore the, the crashing, the rock that bore the crashing waves uh, against him uh, of them. And so it's really interesting then how the, how the New Testament authors are always seeing this in a, in a Jesus uh, centered way. Uh, at the end of the psalm, it's interesting though. You you see uh, the psalmist also bring down curses on his enemies, and so uh, in in this case, we would say the enemy ultimately the enemy for us is the enemy of sin, the enemy of the devil, um, the enemy of being uh, uh, distanced from God, um, and and the, and those who ultimately reject him, of course, too, will ultimately face judgment. But again, the good news is that his justice includes being a sin absorber as well. So there's kind of this crux, you know, like are we the ones who will have our sins kind of absorbed by Jesus, or are we the ones who will uh, find ourselves kind of outside the circle of people who are trusting in themselves and trusting in, because that's really what's happening in a lot of ways on the cross is Jesus is dying there, uh, but people are trusting in themselves. You know, they're, they're asking, actually in Luke 23, it says uh, that the the centurions and the, and the crowds and soldiers are saying to Jesus, save yourself, save yourself. And I think you get this kind of great two voice thing kind of happening there, which, um, I forgot this came up in our last podcast or not, but I think like it's a really cool Eastery thing. You know, if you have the voice of save yourself, which is the voice of works that Jesus doesn't listen to, uh, instead he brings back a better voice of, no, you can't. Uh, I'll be the one though that that uh, that saves you. So I think the Psalm actually at 69 being so long gives us kind of two sides uh, of that as well, that Jesus is bringing mercy and justice by being the reproach bearer. Uh, but then those on the, and destroying our enemies in the process, but also those in the outside of that circle through disbelief and self-trust um, will be the ones who are kept out. So, mm. Yeah, another another verse that uh, is worth jumping on and, and just like thinking about a little bit is uh, because, because of the, um, the concept that we talk about a lot uh, together here on this podcast and elsewhere and, and within the church is just the, the reality of physical things pointing to a greater spiritual reality. And um, in the New Testament, you see this all over the place when Jesus goes towards people who are blind, people who are deaf, people who do not understand, people who are um, physically lame, unable to move. Uh, we say that these, these things are ultimately a picture of everyone uh, who have spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, spiritual uh, dumbness, misunderstanding, and spiritual lameness. Um, this, this is, Jesus is trying to be very clear. Hey, do, you, you need to see yourself in these individuals. This is not just some random person 2000 years ago who suffered from a physical ailment, though that is an individual in the story. You are that individual. And Psalm 69, I think is one of those places where this is where we get this hermeneutic. You have, uh, Psalm 69, three saying, 
my eyes fail looking for my God. You have this picture of one whose physical eyes are failing to see God and that invitation to see that greater spiritual reality that you don't have the ability to look out onto the world, see how the way the world works, and then come to conclusions about this is where God is found. In fact, uh, if you try and do that, you're always going to arrive at the wrong place. The only way to see the world as it is, is to see through the crux of the cross, to see through the way that God has revealed himself um, as the one that, as the thing that he put on public display, that this is, this is how I want to be known. This is how I want to be seen by me coming down and you're not able to touch it. You're not able to actually get up there and die with Jesus. He's going to do it in public for you to see so that you might see the way the world actually works. And it has to do, it has everything to do with the one who died for your sins. Uh, the last analogy I think I, that I, that holds within the gospel accounts of this is in addition to the number of places where Jesus is going out and, and, and healing the blind, uh, my favorite instance of it is a guy who um, he has his sight partially restored. So after Jesus, you know, lays his hands on him, he pulls his hands back and and he says, "What do you see?" And the guy says, "Well, it looks like trees walking around. They might be human beings. I'm not really sure." And then it says Jesus puts his hands back on the guy's eyes and then picks him off again, and he says, "What do you see?" And then the guy sees with clarity. And it's, it's not an accident that Jesus is doing this. We've seen him heal people in, when he's far away. He's not even in the presence of somebody. You know, he'll say, hey, actually, that person is now better. Go home and check it out. Um, so it's not because he lacks power. And so it just takes a little extra, you know, hand pressure for this miracle. A second try. Yes. <laughs> Instead, it has everything to do with the touch of Jesus. He really wants us to see it's Jesus's hands who are being laid on this individual. And, 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 and this is true in our own Christian life. There are times where we're like, man, we come to a little bit of clarity. I'm like, okay, I think I'm beginning to see, man, grace really is at the, the heart of the universe. But there are questions that I have along the way of like, but what about, you know, that's even why we do that part, that, that section in this podcast. And then the solution to that is not going, you know, enrolling in a university and getting a PhD. And so you can understand the world. The solution to that is, is the touch of Jesus, that we would actually have his hands laid on our eyes by engaging the scriptures, by engaging his people, by plugging into the, the place where he hangs out, which is the church and hearing his voice so that we might see with clarity again, so that our blind day, our blind eyes might be able to see thanks to his hands. Love it. Yeah, it kind of pokes back at that, uh, I'll help you if you help me mm-hmm. kind of theology that is easy to fall into sometimes without grace, you know, and uh, or the idea that, you know, God needs help or that we maybe link arms with him or assist him in some capacity, you know, when it comes to sanctification, maybe like that, that he helps us to have the, the people walking or looking like trees kind of uh, spiritual state, but then it's up to us to kind of, you know, take it from there. Uh, that kind of story pokes back at that, right? And says, no, it's, it's the nail pierced hands of Jesus that will, that will, that will bring clarity uh, all, all through our life in any day. And it's undeniable. So, so, so go there for, for help. Uh, let's turn now to second Corinthians one verses 12 to 24. So this is going to be a description of Paul's change of plans where he had originally uh, planned to come back to the Corinthian church on his way back to Macedonia, but he had to pivot his plans. He had to pivot uh, his plans. And so he has some questions to answer from the Corinthians. They feel that his fickleness, um, you know, needs, needs a day in court. And so he's going to address that 
um, to which he's going to happily talk about Jesus in the midst of that and the ways that he does or does not resemble him. Uh, but before we talk about that, I, I did want to just read um, just a, a verse and a half here earlier in this section. I believe it starts in 12, where he says um, that we don't rely on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. I mean, it's just such a simple statement. We don't rely on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace, for we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And just this, I, Chris is writing an article right now for Red Tree on, on just the very, his own journey of uh, coming to clarity about how to read the scriptures. And that's just, I'd, I'd say this is a good thesis of what you're writing. You didn't quote this passage, but you didn't have to because the Bible's always interested in showing you the difference between grace and worldly wisdom and how you can understand even the most difficult writer of the Bible, namely the Apostle Paul. Uh, the Bible says as much like, yeah, he's, 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 sometimes it's a little murky. Sometimes it's a little hard to understand. But the the more uh, central you put grace at the heart of your understanding of these things, he just says, you can make sense of this. You can make head from tails and uh, it's not too hard for you because worldly wisdom is is not your key. It's not the thing that unlocks meaning. Instead, it is it is God's grace. Yeah, I think um, grace and simplicity often go together, you know, and complexity and works often go together. You know, there might be exceptions to that here and there sometimes in scripture or in life, but I think often those are the dualities you get, you know, grace and simplicity and maybe surprise as well. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think just that idea of even understanding who God is and what salvation is has to come by surprise. It has to almost um, not be the way we would naturally understand it ourselves uh, or it's probably not true. And so that's that's why Jesus becoming those red decoder glasses and becoming the very meaning behind all of the obscure parts of the Bible uh, has to be the truth because we wouldn't be inclined. We're, we're not going to naturally read him into those stories and see him there unless the scriptures themselves pull up that veil and tell us to and give us uh, like Galatians 4 does kind of this uh, in many other places, um, this uh, blueprint basically for for doing it uh, ourselves. Which really aligns with uh, one of the, I think, best verses in the entire Bible, which is X 413 about the way people saw the apostles and they just really saw that these guys were really average Joes. It says they were unschooled, ordinary men, but they had been with Jesus. That was people's takeaway of like, well, okay, these guys don't have all of the fancy things, but there's something powerfully different about them. And they were even able to deduce the fact that they had been with Jesus. That makes all the difference. Their eyes had been touched by the hands of Jesus and they're able to see with the clarity that grace can only bring. Uh, with that in mind, do you have any thoughts on this yes-no business that uh, Paul's bringing up and, and why he's talking about his fickle plans and the change of plans? And Yeah, I think you, I mean, you summarized it well. I think, you know, Paul, the context here is Paul wanted, was going to go see them and they knew that, but then his plans changed. The spirit kind of led him uh, to make a left turn at some point and he wasn't able to go. And so he, a lot of Second Corinthians, he's writing to kind of uh, encourage them and let them know he still loves them. And, you know, it wasn't his original plan, but hopefully you can see them, them again and we'll see them again soon. Um, but in light of that, he kind of takes his experience and kind of uh, in his uh, vacillation of sorts and brackets that to the side and says, there's, you know, don't project my uh, vacillation onto Jesus. Like, you know, in, in one sense, I, in one sense, I wasn't vacillating because I wanted to come to you and still love you and, but God had other plans. Uh, but to whatever degree you understand that as vacillation, Jesus never does that. Jesus never says, yes, I'm coming to you, but then has some kind of 11th hour, uh, 
other plan that, that comes up. He's, he's always a yes. He, he will always be the fulfillment of God's, yes, I love you. Yes, I'm coming to you. And, and yes, I'll, I'll rescue you. Jesus is not a millennial, you're saying. <laughs> I, you know, as a millennial, I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the classic millennial uh, social planning is, no, I'll say yes to you at the last minute, just in uh-huh. case something more important comes up. So right. the yes, no millennial way is not known by Jesus. Funny. I, I thought of the movie Yes Man as well as I was reading this, because it just... Paul is going out of his way to say, you know, Jesus's answer to you is not yes and no, but it's, it's always yes. It always has been yes and always will be yes. They, the very promises of God are yes in Christ, capital Y, yes. And uh, if you haven't seen the movie, Yes Man, it's, it's a Jim Carrey skippable movie uh, in many ways, but the concept I think is, is, a, is a fun one. This guy who's just pretty selfish and locked up and, and regularly saying no to things that come his way. He has some self-help guru come along and and tell him, you got to say yes to everything that happens. And uh, as could be predicted in a movie like this, you know, it opens new doors and opportunities and he finds himself in all sorts of new situations that are actually super life-giving. And then the movie has to go somewhere. There has to be a problem, of course. And the problem is, of course, that this is going to kill him. If he continues to say yes to everything, he he needs to strike a balance of yes and no. So actually quite quite opposite of where this passage is, is taking us. Um, the, the movie kind of ends with like, yeah, you should generally say yes to things, but, you know, self-care, hashtag, before that was that, that was a thing, um, or at least a, a, a phrase. And it's just it's just helpful to kind of compare that because gr- grace ain't like the movie Yes Man, you know the the person of Jesus is not like the movie Yes Man. Um, I think in in some ways it actually bids us to like the reality that this guy was gonna he was gonna he couldn't do that he had to take care of himself he was gonna die if he continued to say yes to everything which I think an on ramp to Jesus is is pretty screaming in your face when you look at that of like this was the guy who who actually did die and and saying yes to God and being the yes of God and all of the promises therein. But more more interestingly, I think too, there's a, you know, it's it's common in church circles to hear you need to just be get better at trusting the promises of God. And I think that's a well enough phrase. I think it's found in hymns and such. And um, but I have found whenever that's said to me uh, as an encouragement or somebody is saying that of like, I know I'm supposed to be doing this, it usually is just the reason it feels hard is because it's pretty vague. Like what, what promises? And like, is there like a manual that I go and look at? Do I just type in promises on Google or chat GPT and then look at the answers to that? (laughs) And, uh, I think the apostle Paul's is clarifying that quite a bit here by saying that's, that's actually not where we go now. Jesus himself is God's yes to all of the promises. And so you can dial up the way that you trust in the promises by trusting in Jesus himself. All of the promises of God that have to do with salvation, forgiveness, provision, sanctification, protection, Jesus himself is God's yes to all of these things. And you can, every time you walk into a church and you see a cross hanging on the wall, that's your picture of God's yes to you. God, it's God's yes incarnate who died for your sins and rose again saying yes to eternal life for your sake. And there's great hope to be found in that. Yeah, I think that's kind of why too we, you know, we understand the New Testament in marital terms a lot. Jesus is our bridegroom and the church is the bride, but when it comes to vows, it's I think it's really only only Jesus saying yes. You know, it's only him saying, "Yes, I'll be there for you forever" because we can't really make those promises to God, you know. And I I think that's why in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus is saying, "This new era will be marked more by 
by my people not making vows uh, to God because I I can I'm the only one that can really make good on my word and can make good on my promises you know so we're not really promise keepers even as Christians and it's not expected of us um, instead we live in the shadow of the one who always says yes and always makes good on his promises and always. It, which includes uh, always being with us and never forsaking us, which is actually a pretty romantic promise when you think about it. You know, when Jesus is, is a bridegroom, especially to say that, you know, for a husband to say that to his wife is a very romantic thing. Uh, and that's why human, humanly speaking, marital vows have that, right? I'll never leave you. Uh, I'll, I'll be with you until death, you know, death until death is us part, you know, and so there's, there's beauty in that. But um, with Jesus, it's dialed up, you know, to 11. It's, you know, it, and it never even has a mark of stain on on it or any kind of mm. momentary blip of it not being true. Like Jesus is, is the ultimate uh, vow maker and, and vow keeper. And ironically, I mean, I think this is one of the mysteries of gospel centered sanctification by doubling down on that, by looking way more at the yes of Jesus, rather than you being a person who makes good on your vows. Uh, though the scriptures talk, you know, they tell us like, Hey, yeah, be a man of your word. It's like, that's a, that's a good thing. Right. But way louder than that statement is the why and the how behind that, that God, God's promises were yes to you in Christ. And the more you just see that, the more you're, you're just basking in that, you're just going to become a, a more honorable person. You're going to become like kind of mysteriously. It's kind of like floating a little bit from the bottom of a sea, the bottom of the sea, you just get pulled up. Uh, by air that's within, right? Like there's there's this just change that happens within you the more you're able to see Jesus as he is rather than looking at your own belly button of yes or no performance vows. Uh, so with that, let's turn the, the page here to our uh, last section of but what about, again, this is when we look at sections or questions that people might have within the church about, well, what, you know, grace might be the center of, of the universe, but, you know, what is what about this part of the Bible or what do we make of this? And today we're going to consider the warnings in specifically the second and third chapter of the book of Revelation. So for context, um, John is writing from an island in Patmos towards the end of his life and and he sees this vision that is pretty wild and has been misinterpreted uh, for a long time. I think we talked a little bit about Revelation even on this podcast in the past, uh, but not not the warnings yet. And so he, he God has a message for, I think it's seven churches in these opening uh, chapters of Revelation. And each church gets some encouragement. They get a unique picture of who Jesus is and what he's like and what he's doing. But they also have these warnings. And these warnings kind of vary. Some of them look the same, uh, having to do with false teaching and um, some figures in the Bible that take on more of a spiritual meaning. And um, the question is, what do we do with this in light of the gospel? What do we do with language like, I have this against you, church? Right. Yeah. Revelation two and three, it's in, it's a, it's a tougher spot, you know, in some ways. Yeah. For those of us who um, are reading scripture through the lens of grace as scripture does. And so, um, but to kind of come to, to a place where we're actually hearing now from the mouth of Jesus that, that there, there is some, there is some warning there's some, uh, or as he says in one of the letters, some loving discipline that we need to hear here. Um, it, but it's, it contains some sharper language that seems to be uh, at least at face value about, you know, kind of how we're doing spiritually, you know, and sort of how we're going to persevere. So um, a couple of things for me that jump off though, before we dig a little bit deeper is uh, Jesus has a really long leash for what constitutes a church. Like if you look at these churches, uh, some of them are very messy and even kind of containing teaching that could be described as satanic uh, or kind of aligned with Jezebel, who's one of the principal antagonists of, of the Old Testament. And, and so um, 
that's not to kind of sanitize anything that they're doing and condone it. It's just to say that we are a mess, uh, these churches. And not every individual in a particular church in a city is going to be in the exact same place, uh, sort of moralistically and sort of, you know, in terms of how they're doing, uh, spiritually speaking. But uh, as a whole, they're they're a mess. And Jesus is still calling them a church, which is, I think, a, a glaring demonstration of grace that it's really uh, any type of barely clinging on to, to the gospel, uh, counts, you know, any type of acknowledging with a, a mustard seed of faith that I'm trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of my sins, uh, maintains your, to use revelations language, maintains your lampstand, uh, in, in the temple because lampstands are churches, uh, and these seven churches represent the church for all time being that number of completion, uh, number seven. And so, uh, past that, I would say, if you look at what Jesus is saying in the letters, we don't have time to read it all. It's too long, but you see this common theme of calling Christians to persevere in the faith, to keep clinging to him, to uh, love other Christians and, and maintain that love uh, in a reciprocal way that God, the greater love he has given us, we can reciprocate that back to him and, and reflect it towards loving other believers, uh, not entertaining false teaching, not being dragged away, uh, uh, repenting, turning from our, our old life of trusting in the self, just trusting in Jesus. Um, those are actually very consistent with the warnings uh, say in the book of Hebrews or elsewhere that Jesus again becomes the crux, kind of like we just said in, in Psalm 69, it's his substitutionary atonement and what we do with that, a moment, uh, that kind of uh, pinnacle or that kind of top of the pyramid and climax of all the biblical story. Do we trust in that or not? Do we trust in the God man? who went and climbed the hill for us and who died on, on top of it on a cross among criminals, that becomes the crux. Are we persevering in that or are we being dragged away into other kind of false teachings that rely more on us and our obedience, uh, I think becomes the thing. So that that's really the thing. And that then, then it becomes maybe less of a, you know, okay, uh, Davis, uh, I saved you, but now it's up to you being, uh, it's up to you and your obedience to my commandments and to the rules and uh, to have these high expectations for you uh, and what your life will look like post-cross versus, or post-conversion versus pre. It's not saying that. It's instead calling people back to the bloody cross and the nail-pierced hands and being victorious, which all the churches get this, to the one who's victorious, the promise you know, of salvation uh, will ultimately be manifested. And, um, and I think then I, I would then finally maybe just turn to Revelation 5 as kind of helpful context to all the letters where it's a really interesting picture in heaven where John... Uh, is weeping because no one is found to open this scroll. And he kind of, and there's this angel there and John has this moment of, uh, of weeping and despair. And you don't know why as a reader at first, like it's just the scroll, what's the big deal? Uh, but it's this moment of uh, something can't be done uh, and I'm not the one able to do it. No one's found in heaven and earth uh, who, can, uh, who can undo the scroll. But then the angel's consolation is don't cry, don't worry, uh, the lamb can do it. The lion of Judah can do it. Jesus has triumphed. Jesus is victorious and he can open this scroll. And so I, I would say to anybody reading reading the, the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, to whatever degree we weep when we read them or, or worry or have concern or feel like some of these things that are being asked of the church feel a little bit heavy, I think Revelation 5 is there as a bookend. And even the rest of Revelation really is a whole book, you could say. And there's a lot we could say, uh, if time permitted, about what the rest of Revelation says about really holding up Jesus, uh, not us, but holding up Jesus. I would say Revelation 5, though, as a microcosm is here for a reason, that the way we can be victorious is through remaining in him 
and abiding in the in the one who the only one really who is victorious is the God man who lives within us now uh, by by his spirit. And so I think as he says to the church in Philadelphia, you have little strength, but you have kept my word. And so this is not about going to the gym, spiritually speaking, lifting weights and getting stronger in and of ourselves. But uh, it's okay to have little strength as long as you keep the word of the gospel and the promise that he will save those who uh, cling to him and ask for forgiveness. Thanks for joining us. You can find us online at www.redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided to us by Brendan Wickstrom and website support via Nolan Bauer. And if you like what you heard, please do drop us a rating or a review on iTunes. Or don't. Either way, we will see you next time on The Red Tree Podcast.